Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the UCL Careers podcast. My name's Joe Budd, and I'm a careers consultant here at UCL Careers. In this episode, you'll hear from speakers working in laboratory and data science roles across a range of organizations, including GSK, IQVIA, Parallax, and the NHS. The speakers will offer insights into their day-to-day work, tips for those students who want to follow a similar pathway, and ways that you can carry the technical elements of your study into your career. So let's get into it. We've got Tom from King's College and King's College Hospital NHS Trust. We've got Cade from St George's Hospital. We've got Jay from Parallaxel. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Eleanor from IQVIA and Jessica from JSK, GSK, sorry. And in terms of data science and labs, um, Tom and Cade are more related to the lab side of things, and Jade and Ella and Jessica are more related to the uh, science, data science side of things. So in terms of introductions, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask each person just to give a brief introduction to themselves, um, the organization, what it does, um, what their role is, uh, what it involves, so either data science or lab or somewhere in between, um, what their career path has been, um, what they studied, and how they got from where they were to where they are today. That's a rough idea of what I'd like each one to talk about. So um, taking in no particular order, I'll start as I see them on my screen, which might be different to your screen. So maybe please just start with Cade, please. Sure. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Cade. I'm currently a trainee clinical scientist um, at St George's Hospital on doing the scientist training program, specifically in biochemistry. So some of you may know that there's lots of different specialisms, but I'm currently um, doing biochemistry. So I guess part, I'll start with what the job is, essentially. So it's my job. Um, well, particularly when I actually become qualified and can work unsupervised, it's working in the lab in, in NHS laboratories who offer testing services um, for biochemistry analysis. And that's so if you go to your GP, for example, you have your bloods taken and they want to assess your, uh, how well your liver's functioning, how well your kidney's functioning, your blood comes to us. And it's our job to do the analysis and to make sure that analysis is correct. Um, a big, big part of my job is actually um, talking a lot with clinicians, including doctors and nurses and advising them on the best tests to use to help get um, to help find a diagnosis and to monitor any pre-existing conditions. So in biochemistry specifically, we have thousands and thousands of tests. And uh, as amazing as doctors and nurses are, there's too many tests for them to kind of understand exactly when to use each one and how to interpret all of the results. It's really difficult. It's too much for for them to, to know how to do everything. So that's where we come in as clinical scientists. It's our job to help um, essentially navigate the clinicians through the very um, complicated world of laboratory testing and results um, interpretation. And another big part of our job. So as a clinical scientist, I'm involved in uh, developing new tests. So if we have a good idea on what we can bring into the lab to help patients, it's our job to do that and to bring it in and to make sure that the test works. Um, and also research. So it's not, uh, I get this question a lot actually, 
um is it do you do research all day and the answer is not all day it's something i do enjoy doing on the side but it is something that we are expected to do if we have the time to do it as well which is always a a positive thing so i guess i'll touch on so just a little bit about the organization i won't spend too much on this we all know what a hospital is <laughs> you go when you're sick and that's also where they send the blood samples to so our so my laboratory is located in st george's hospital and uh, that's where I work. And it's one of many hospitals around the country, NHS based as well. So if you want to know more about that specifically, there's tons and tons of information. So I won't focus too much on, I think, the organisation. I don't want to take up all the time. Um, and so I guess I'll talk a little bit just about my career path specifically and how I am where I am today. Um, so I actually did um, a biomedical science degree that was IBMS accredited. And I did a placement year uh, in my third year of my biomedical science degree where I worked in an NHS laboratory as a trainee biomedical scientist. Um, and it was during that time I was able to complete the IBMS registration portfolio to become a qualified biomedical scientist. And I used that experience to help me get onto the scientist training program to become a clinical scientist. And the scientist training program, it's a three-year um, program where they fully fund your master's and you get paid to do it at the same time. So it's a, it's a, it is a very good program. I feel uh, very, very spoiled and lucky, I think, to, to be on it. Um, so, and, but that's kind of what I did. Many people on my course didn't do, um, didn't have any previous laboratory experience, but you do have to have a degree. It's a graduate scheme, the scientist training program. Um, and yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Have I missed anything, V? No, I think it's pretty pretty good. Yeah, thank you, Cade. Um, I guess it makes sense uh, to ask Tom next, uh, as you're also lab based. Hi there, um, hi everybody. So uh, my name's Tom. I uh, work for King's College Hospital um, and for King's College London University. I manage the adult and paediatric liver biobanks um, at uh, King's College Hospital. Basically, what we do is we recruit adult and paediatric donors that come through the liver service. Um, and we recruit them to donate clinical data, um, blood samples and excess material from uh, procedures they might have, such as biopsies or surgery, things like that. Um, we collect the material and data, anonymise it, store it and then distribute it to researchers who are looking into treatments, causes, methods of diagnosis, etc., um, and want to use our samples. Um, a huge part of what I do at the moment um, is really based around the governance side of things. Um, obviously, you work with human tissue samples. There's a lot of legislation and laws um, surrounding the use and storage um, of that material. Um, and I also um, cover the sort of the lab duties of my um, my lab team who are responsible for collecting the material, uh, processing and storing it in a manner that makes it useful for our researchers. Um, in terms of career paths, uh, my background is actually in ecology. Um, I have a, a degree in marine biology um, and a master's degree in ecology. Um, and when I completed my master's degree, I went back home um, and uh, there weren't many marine biology jobs in the middle of Essex. 
Um, so I um, started applying for sort of just as many lab jobs as I could. Um, we're quite close to London, so there were lots of universities, etc. And um, ten years ago, I just um, was fortunate enough to get a entry level job in a um, hemato oncology biobank at Queen Mary University. Um, so essentially at the, the bottom of the ladder um, where I was responsible for actually recruiting the donors and collecting the samples and then over the last 10 years have just sort of moved up through the levels um, within the biobank and now uh, managing two of them. That's it really. Okay thanks Tom. Um, Jessica do you want to go next? Sure. So hi everyone, uh, I'm Jess and I work at GSK. So you might know, but GSK is one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies out there. Um, I think we employ around 99,000 uh, employees across maybe over 150 countries. Uh, and there I am a scientific analytics and visualization expert, which is a bit of a mouthful, but essentially I am in a data science world. Um, I deliver agile data solutions to R&D customers. So we would partner with different areas of R&D and depending on their needs, we would develop a solution. So I'm in charge of assessing what is the need and the problem they're trying to solve, whether it's feasible, whether it brings value, what are the risks um, involved, where are the timelines, et cetera. Uh, but at the same time, I've, in my past, I've also been a senior scientist at GSK. So I, I was also based um, on the bench and therefore I have this unique pers both perspectives and I can act as a translator between the bench scientist and the data scientist so that yeah we're all speaking the, the same language so my role involves a lot of stakeholder management a lot of communicating effectively uh, and to different audiences which I really enjoy uh, how I got here well I always knew I wanted to be a research scientist. I love science. Um, so I came to UK to study biomedical sciences and then I, I stayed on, I completed a master's, then went on to do PhD, so a more traditional academic route. But midway through my PhD, I realized that I wanted to have um, a bigger impact to be able to work on something more, more practical and not so focused on perhaps a specific protein in a specific disease. Uh, and that's why I moved to, to pharma. Uh, and how I got there was, um, I think every, every step of my career, I've been very intentional. So assessing different options, but when I pick one, just you know, going for it 100%. Um, and I, I'm sure I'll get into this later, but you know, getting into industry wasn't the easiest step. Um, and I think also depending on when you transition from an academic to a, an industry role, it can, it can present its own advantages and disadvantages. So I'm, I'm happy to share that. Um, but yes, I think that would be all. Lovely. Thank you. And prefer, I call you Jess from now on. Yes, that's fine. Thank you. Okay, no problem. Um, and Eleanor. So I work for a company called IQVIA, which if we were there in person, now it would just be around the corner because our London office is based in King's Cross. Um, so IQVIA is a CRO, multinational CRO, and it's kind of its tagline is all about human data science. Um, the company has uh, many offerings and like different touch points of the healthcare ecosystem, but um, the area I'm involved with is more the data side. So we have 
uh, colleagues working on clinical trials, whereas I'm the other side and the real world evidence. So we would be using data sets like from the biobank, um, from hospitals, from GPs, from registries, and then we'd be using that data to do, typically we'd be doing retrospective cohort studies. And this, these studies would be commissioned by a client who are often pharmaceutical companies, or sometimes we do uh, projects back to the NHS. Um, and these projects would be looking at mainly treatment pathways or would be doing survival analysis or some sort of regression modeling to look at the association of certain factors with an outcome. Or it could be a, just a descriptive study looking at which patients are, are diagnosed with this and what happens to them. Um, so date, my role day to day um, varies, but we kind of had like this project delivery process. So it starts with the protocol where we think about the study design and if there's any bias we're going to be introducing. And then we move on to the statistical analysis plan. We think about what methods would be most suitable and things like how well uh, certain variables are captured in the real world data. And then I'd also be doing the programming. So this would include the data management, the actual analysis, and then outputting this. And then I would be working with like another epidemiologist to interpret the results. And then this is presented back to the client and to um, kind of advisory specialists that kind of help us throughout the project. Um, and then this often leads to publications if the results are kind of of interest. Um, in terms of my career path, I studied biology at um, Bristol and I realised that I really liked the more quantitative human disease side of things. So I went and studied a master's in epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, I then, straight after finishing that, I decided to do an internship at QVIA. And that was two and a half years ago, and I'm still there today. Um, but I also, during my undergrad, I kind of used my summers to figure out where I wanted to go. So one summer I was out being a field researcher in Greece. Uh, another summer I was working in a microbiology lab. And then my last summer I was, um, I got a bioinformatics placement at a pharmaceutical company. And I kind of, that, that experience, I'm really glad I did that because I could, I've kind of dipped my toes in working, you know, outside in a lab and then in an office. Um, I think that's, that's everything, all those points covered, I believe. Yeah, lovely. Thank you very much, Elena. Uh, Jade, thanks for your patience. It's okay. Last but by far not the least, you want to have your interruption. Um, yeah, so hi everyone, I'm Jade and um, I studied biomedical science and then I did a master's degree at the UCS School of Pharmacy uh, and I studied drug discovery and pharmaceutical management. So since my um, undergrad, I always knew I would uh, want to go into pharmaceuticals. So currently I'm working at Paroxone International 
which is also um, a CRO, which means a contract research organization. And it's a multinational company. We are present in 80, more than 80 countries with um, at least 20,000 employees. And um, I am basically a clinical research associate. And what we do is we are working with um, several pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies um, to support them in their clinical uh, development of their drugs. And uh, me as a, a clinical research associate, um, I'm overseeing a lot of um, um, studies across the UK um, um, and Ireland. And basically I work with doctors and nurses and data managers and people in the lab to make sure that all the clinical um, trials they are, run, are running according to the protocol and according to a GCP, which is good clinical practice. And uh, basically we ensure that all the data that's collected during the trial, it's indeed valid. Um, everything that's, um, so all the data that's collected is present in source documents, which can be medical records, for example. And then uh, our primary focus is that um, the patients are protected throughout the whole trial, their safety is not jeopardized. Um, and basically during the trials, we also collect, um, um, we also record adverse events um, that um, later on goes into the label of the drugs. And um, we mainly uh, work on phase two and three trials. And I think that working at a CRO is very exciting because um, we have the opportunity to work on many projects uh, focusing different therapeutic areas. So me, um, I really enjoy science and the fact that I can work on projects that matter and uh, I can constantly learn uh, about different therapeutic areas. I think that's great. And uh, currently I'm working on, for example, epilepsy studies and uh, oncology um, and uh, arthritis studies. So there are a lot of therapeutic areas to focus on. And uh, how I get there, basically after my master's, I, um, I applied for Paroxel and I did a training program for like a year. And now I was trained to be a clinical research associate and uh, currently I'm, I'm overseeing many studies independently. And uh, my job requires a lot of traveling um, one, twice or three times a week um, as we need to visit different hospitals, which can be challenging sometimes, but very um, exciting at the same time. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Lovely. Thanks, Jade. Thank um, you. We've got quite a few questions in, which is great to see. Uh, just keep asking if you, if you want to. Um, and I'll ask them in the order they've appeared. So the one that seems to be the most popular at the moment is what qualifications are required for data scientists and do we need any experience? Who wants to start that one? Um, I can. Okay, thanks, Eleanor. Um, qualifications. Uh, so, so say if you were to get a job in my the team I work in, you'd need a background in um, public health, epidemiology, medical statistics, um, you know, health data science, that kind of um, side of things. But yeah, in terms of qualifications, I think some people think you need a PhD to go into that. So I, myself and about probably a third of our team, we all have masters and then everyone else has a PhD um, so it's, it's not necessary because sometimes you can find you can work a number of years in industry which then could equate to 
the experience you'd gained from a PhD. I think that's how some people view it. Um, does that answer the question? <laughs> okay, yeah. Sure. Who wants to go next? I, I can add it and, uh, as well. So um, there are many routes to, to get into a data science or data science related job. So for example, in my case, I don't have a background in data science. Uh, but through the, the role and working a lot with data scientists, I've learned a lot about the different programming languages and about different models that one can develop for different um, applications. So I think there is an aspect, as Eleanor mentioned, of just learning on the job. Um, and that will equate to not necessarily, you know, meeting those qualifications. Uh, but for example, in my team, we're divided in a line that it's the delivery where I sit and then the data science. So these are, you know, the more hardcore <laughs> data scientists. Um, and, and they do have a background in either bioinformatics or computational science, um, maybe not necessarily associated with life sciences before, but then, you know, went to pharma and focused on that. Uh, and again, it's varied. So we have people with PhDs, we have people with masters, but there's also a few schemes in GSK. So there is a new data science graduate scheme uh, there are apprentice, apprenticeships, um, and also we have industrial placement students that, you know, so, so we have the, the whole spectrum of, of um, experience in data science and qualifications. So I wouldn't say that you, yeah, you should feel limited by what you have, um, but definitely investigate whether that is something that you want to focus more on 100% of your role, or if it's like me, just requires a level of understanding and, and, and uh, yeah, the acumen of, the, of data science, but not necessarily doing the programming on a daily basis. Um, so it's down to you, but I would say in general, you know, the things that are very common nowadays. Um, if it's more biology oriented, perhaps it's R. If it's more about um, modeling with Python, if it's more about building an interface, then you are looking at other languages, you know, if you're working perhaps with Java or, or yeah, other, other languages. Okay, thanks Jess. And, and just before we move on to someone else, someone's, there's another question, which is directed to you, but maybe it's applicable to, to others as well, mm -hmm. is uh, what would be your top tips for someone who would like to enter the pharma industry, academic qualifications and or non-academic qualities? Yes, so um, th that's definitely something that I wanted to cover. So I joined GSK on a graduate scheme. It's called the Future Leaders Program. Uh, and I think it's a great avenue to enter the industry because it's, um, well, it can be quite competitive. And this is something that's not only available at GSK, it's available in all pharma industries. It's just different naming or branding. Uh, but it's good because you it's a rotational scheme in all cases. So you get exposure to different areas of R&D and maybe you start figuring out what is it that you want to do, perhaps not so much in the terms of the scientific focus, but also more on the daily, you know, what soft skills do you have to use on, on the daily basis. Um, and I think that scheme for me helped me realize that whilst I love the technical aspects and I'm on a technical ladder, I also do get a lot of fulfillment from these other soft skills like communications, they call it management, and, and that's where I'm aiming towards um, these days. Uh, but in terms of qualifications, as I said, to go into a graduate scheme, you just need a bachelor's. You don't necessarily need a master's. Um, for certain of those, they might ask you for higher qualifications. But if you want to go into industry for a more specific role that's being advertised, then obviously the qualifications depend on the role and it will tell you in the, in the role spec. But 
a piece of advice is that when I started looking at this kind of jobs, I felt like I didn't, you know, fulfill any of that experience. And that's why I went for a graduate scheme. But I think in the end, what is in the role spec is their ideal candidates and they will never find that ideal candidate. So if you can fulfill like even part of it, I would just say go for it because, you know, in the end it's just practice of writing your cover letter and, and getting your CV in shape. So I wouldn't be discouraged, you know, for those that ask you for a PhD. If you have a master's and you have, you know, some working experience, um, in the lab through other means. So for example, like Eleanor was mentioning, like any summer internships, then I would just go and, and apply. Thanks, Jess. And Jay, do you have anything to add in terms of qualifications or need for inexperience? Um, yeah, so um, at Tarok self, so we are a CRO, we, uh, the prerequisite is only um, um, a BSc degree. Um, however, some of my colleagues, we, like some of us, they have a master's and I think it is beneficial in the long term. Uh, but um, you can find a job, I think, um, within the CRO, within pharmaceuticals with a bachelor's degree. Um, and what we focus on in terms of soft skills that's really important for us is like time management, communication, being able to work in, in a team and independently as well. Um, so basically all these soft skills are, um, that I mentioned, they are relevant. And I think that if you do any ex uh, extracurricular activities uh, beside your course, then that can be really, uh, really beneficial. And me personally, I was um, one of the co-founder of the UCL MedTech Society back then in 2017. And I think that really helped me to get a position as a trainee within Paracel. So, um, and to be honest, like I think applying for jobs, uh, me personally, I applied early on. So I think it's a, it's a game of numbers. The more you apply, the higher the chances you will land a job within the pharmaceuticals. And sometimes it can be competitive but um, you guys are studying at UCL, which is a big name. And I, I, what I learned is that it, um, it does help to, to get a job if you studied at UCL. And for example, the direct, director in my um, uh, company, um, she studied at UCL as well, which was uh, really good to bond on during the interview. So that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Jade. Um, Okay, there's a question here, probably uh, could apply to anybody. So maybe uh, Kate or Tom want to answer this one. Um, are established postdocs at a disadvantage compared to new PhD, MSc, BSc graduates when applying for positions in your fields? Um, I'm, ha I'm happy to take that first if you want. Um, for the STP specifically, no, so, so I'm just, double checking the question um bsc um established postdocs at a disadvantage um so i'll you don't you definitely do not need a phd to do the stp um if that's like and to go down this route and to work in laboratory um science in the nhs at all you in terms of the applications for the stp having a phd only gets you one extra mark out of 60 in the application and the majority of the people in my year do not. So some people do have PhDs and they're, and they're excellent. They're really, really good, but um, do not think you need a PhD to um, get onto the STP by any means at all. Most people don't. And having a PhD won't necessarily guarantee you entry either. But if you want to do one and then do the STP after, that's great. It definitely will not hurt, but it won't guarantee entry at all. Okay, so it sounds to me like established postdocs are at no disadvantage or advantage. You got it. 
yeah, neither. It, it, it would depend more on the experience. Yeah. I guess you've got if it's yeah if you research and your postdoc then it might help but yeah it's neither advantage or disadvantage. Okay, uh, Tom, is that clickable here? Um, yeah, I, sorry. I just want to say first of all, my Wi-Fi seems to be struggling a bit, so if I drop out at some point, I do apologise. Okay. Um, I think within biobanks, there's a variety of roles. Uh, certainly, having a PhD wouldn't be a disadvantage to getting any of the roles. Um, we have sort of by entry level positions where we do ask people to have at least um, a BSc. Um, but then once you sort of beyond those entry level positions, um, we're probably much more interested in your uh, experience, your lab skills. Um, if you can, like, like um, a lot of the data scientists have mentioned, sort of your soft skills, working with people, uh, being able to plan your time effectively, manage projects, etc., things like that, they're probably more valuable. Um, and then obviously we, we also have a data side where we have data managers and so some sort of experience in that field um, is, is an advantage, but obviously that would depend on um, sort of what you studied or what your research projects were. So um, yeah, your, your experience is probably much more valuable um, to, 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 to what you do. Thanks. And um, would you say that's the same for the data uh, roles as well? Whoever wants to take that first. Eleanor? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say the one thing about um, if a postdoc is disadvantaged, so if it's assuming your experience is relevant, when you come to negotiate your salary, right, you're, you're going to have like this bigger leverage. So you find that two people with one with a PhD, one without doing the same role, the PhD person is going to be paid more. So it's um, the investment. Yeah, I think can be worth it um but yes it's just kind of echoing what others have said you don't from what i see the same person could do the same job they don't have a phd but you probably get paid better if you did thanks uh anything else to add or shall we move on no okay um so Cade, question for you it says you mentioned you have a chance to do research on the side. Can you give any examples of what sort of research you have the opportunity to do and how it compares to academic research, perhaps? Wow, that's a good question. Um, so the research that I've been involved with have actually kind of been by coincidence. And I mean that. So I, I think it's probably good just to touch on the fact. So. Um, even though research is definitely not your primary role as a clinical scientist, but it, research is something that most clinical scientists do touch on when they have the time. So the research that I've specifically been involved with is I had to actually do an audit and an investigation into the way that our lab was currently set up to see. So the European um, Cardiac Foundation essentially wanted to bring in a new way to, of being able to triage patients who they think have had a heart attack. And I looked at the, the way that the lab was set up and the performance of our particular methods for analyzing these tests and actually found out that our setup wasn't good enough to be implementing these new guidelines. Um, I did that kind of as a thing and be like, okay, we need to do that for the department. And it wasn't actually until my supervisor said, okay, this is great. You've done this for us. You should publish this. And so I did. So I put, and it's, 
it's kind of blown up and it's actually quite controversial because I've got against the whole like European Federation recommendations, but it's, it's something that you kind of do as a bonus. Um, and another example was I was just working, this was actually only about four months ago. Um, I was authorizing some patient results and noticed something was really quite strange with this particular patient um, in terms of their results. It didn't quite fit the clinical picture. And I did a little bit of digging um, and used some of the problem solving skills that you develop throughout your time on the course. And that, and actually found out that this patient had a really rare protein in their blood that was completely interfering with the tests that we were trying to measure, giving really unreliable results. So that was a coincidental finding that I, um, that I found just doing my daily job. But again, it has such wide implications for patient management that I was heavily um, uh, um, supported to write it up and publish it. So yeah, it's more, I, I would say that doing research in as a clinical scientist, it's a bonus that you're supported and encouraged to do, but it's not the primary role. As long as the routine work is covered and the routine patient work and everything is fine, if research is something you want to do, you definitely can do it, but it's not the primary role. Okay. Uh, is anybody else doing any research uh, and how it might compare to academic research? Yes, Elena? Yeah, I, like everything I do, we, we call research. and um, But it's kind of, yeah, slightly different to because the end product is like a report that's then given back to the client, but then yeah, this this can then turn into a manuscript and then, then ultimately become become um, published. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, everything I do is research. Okay, uh, Jess. In GSK, I mean, R&D is a huge side of what we do. It's one of our, our key businesses, pharmaceuticals, and there's a lot of ongoing research to develop these new medicines. Um, I was involved as a senior scientist in more of the early drug discovery work, not so much on the later stages, but in terms of how it compares to academia, it's a lot more varied and it has more clear deliverables. So for example, in academia, I think you can be working on something for a long time uh, and as long as you have the funding, you can continue. But in, in industry, if you're not meeting your, your measurables, your measure success X, then you just you know, decide that this is not the best way and you can kind of project. So it moves really fast. It's really fast paced. Um, the focus can change from one day to another uh, just because of decisions that are being made at a higher level. And this is something that, yeah, you just have to be prepared to, to deal with. Um, maybe not get too attached to all of your projects, but in, in a way it's great because you know that what you're doing will actually have an impact. Um, and since it's so varied and dynamic, you, you, you get that mix of projects that at least for me, keeps me motivated. Thanks Jess. Jay, Tom, anything to add? Uh, is that a question that we do any research aside? Well, yeah, so, and also um, that might compare to academic research. Um, yeah, personally, like we work on clinical, um, uh, so we work in clinical research and but my job is focusing more on the management side of things. So we don't really do any sort of research within the company, although Paracel um, does have a lab services. 
So um, then they analyze samples and things like that. But I'm not really involved on that side. Yes. Okay. I'm not sure if I can add anything to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Thanks. Uh, Tom? Um, I mean, we, um, we collect samples and facilitate research with what we do. So we don't, most biobanks don't carry out a huge amount of um, individual research. Um, certainly everything I do is mostly based around the management of the samples until we give them to a researcher. Um, some of the larger, uh, better funded biobanks um, do partake in their own research. Um, there's obviously, um, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of data resources and sample resources. So there is the capacity to do quite a lot of research. Um, and some biobanks do link in very closely um, with the researchers that they work with. Uh, so for instance, rather than giving a sample to a researcher who's then going to process it, essentially turn it into a data point, the biobank will actually do a lot of that themselves and just provide the data um, to the researcher. But that's, I'd say that's for your sort of your, your larger, best funded um, research tissue banks. Um, personally i've done research in the past um but the sort of the level i'm at at the moment um it's it's so much more based around the governance and the the management of the samples rather than the use okay thanks tom uh, uh, sorry do you mind if i quickly just add on just I just, yeah, wanted sure. to Go ahead. Just, uh, just more specifically the differences with um just nhs research with academic research point mm -hmm. um, on that point um Correct me if I'm wrong with the, you know, the other panellists. I think they probably know more about academic research specifically. But I, I'd say the key difference between the research that I would be doing and the research that academics would be doing is that the research that you would be doing as a clinical scientist, you're doing it because you kind of want to do it and you have the time to do it. There's, a, there's, zero, z, there's absolutely zero pressure to publish in the NHS. The, no one's saying you have to do it to meet targets or do anything like that. If you do it, it's because you kind of want to do it. Um, and it might be a bonus for your CV, but it's not something that's pressured on you at all. So just thought I'd add that. Thanks. Um, so got a question directed to you, Jess. Um, can you expand on your transition from PhD to industry? Uh, did you have any prior industry experience? Uh, and you mentioned it was difficult. How so? And do you have any tips? Quite a long question, that one, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, the first two are there, you know, um, easy to answer. Uh, I did not have any experience in industry at all. I did not do any industrial placement. I did not have any links to, to any pharma companies, which I know some colleagues had, and that, you know, also helped them secure a position. Uh, I guess in, in my case, I realized a bit too late <laughs> that I wanted to do that transition. And I mentioned that it was tough. Um, and I think it's not super tough it's just that in my case I'm not uh, I'm not a home student so I'm not uh, I'm not British and I'm not from the EU and therefore getting that uh, funding and, and a sponsorship to have a position in, in the UK was a bit tougher uh, and that's why it was great that I got into a graduate scheme because that provided the, the adequate support for me to, to continue down that path. Um, what I would say uh, is, is key to get these kind of positions is just a lot of preparation for the interviews. So in my case, my program was very competitive. I had different stages. 
Um, I think it was something like five different stages of interviews, you know, getting to the point of a video interview and then finally the assessment center, which is quite similar to what you get in, for example, consulting companies um, or bigger firms. So what I did is just, I did thorough research online on what type of question GSK asks and um, yeah, what kind of exercises you go through. And I just leveraged on LinkedIn. I found out anyone that I roughly knew, like a friend from a friend that works at GSK or like pharma industry, what is their advice? And I even chatted to some people in the program um, that I didn't know at all. And I just reached out saying, sorry, can you, you know, can you have some tips on, on how I can get this job because I really wanted it. Um, and I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got is just to be yourself. I mean, you, you have the, you know what experience you're bringing, right? Uh, and it's just the, the company also has to see whether you're a good fit. And in GSK, it's, it's really all about the values and the expectations that they have. Um, so you do go through some kind of values assessment uh, and they want to see whether you'd be happy to work there on a daily basis and you're a good match for, for not just the team, but the company as a whole. So yeah, just do a lot of you know, background research on, on what they're looking for. Okay, and just before we move on, there's another question for you, just Jess. Um, could you please expand on your role as a senior scientist at GSK? So, I mean, uh, <laughs> how can you put that in a, in, a, in a short answer? I don't know. No, no, I can, I can. Um, so I did two, two major roles. And uh, so I was working in um, early drug discovery, so screening. And first I was more focused on small molecule programs. And then I moved into biofarms. So I did everything from engineering, you know, the, the DNA sequence to go into the biofarm myself, to actually expressing it in cells, to then testing it in and developing imaging assays to assess how it was um, performing in, in, in specific cells. So... I would say in general, as a scientist in GSK, you can, you, have, you can either be on a specific program, so you're focused on a specific product, drug, asset, however you wanna call it, and you're working towards that and a specific milestone, or you can be in, in the early phase like I was, so more on the screening and finding the new targets and finding what potential new medicine can um, you know, tackle this specific mechanism and you can judge that by different types of assays. So, uh, you know, you, you hear life sciences people, so we do a lot of flow cytometry, a lot of imaging, uh, a lot of sample collection and assessing, you know, the different components in, in, in the media from cells, for example. Um, so yeah, I was, I was involved in a lot of the in vitro work because that's my background. I was working on stem cells during my PhD in Cambridge. So that's, I think, also how I got there because I had the experience that I wanted because they wanted to develop more of these, um, yeah, stem cell models for drug discovery. Okay. Thanks. Um, Eleanor, a question for you, but I guess it, it applies to more than just yourself, unless this person specifically is interested in Arcubia. Uh, it's, do you have any tips on finding summer placements? Um, yeah, so I think when I uh, found summer placements, um, I used the various sources. So I'm sure UCL have this, but like that, at um, Bristol we had like a careers notice board and I literally went up to, it was like a physical notice board and there were all different kind of things that were happening over summer um, and I would kind of look at that every day and I saw a few things that kind of interest me and that's how I got a, a role as a field researcher. Um, yeah then the next summer I 
was a bit of a sad story, but I, it was like the day after exams, everyone was kind of struggling with their hangovers. I went to the library one day and sent about what felt like a million emails to just so many people. Um, and I think I got two replies and one of those replies, I went and worked in his lab that summer. Um, and then the, when I got um, a placement, it was at UCB, um, Pharma, it was a bioinformatics placement. I actually, I again reached out to a lot of people by use LinkedIn um, and I kind of got in contact with this recruiter and she found me a, I was just looking for like a small job just to earn some money over summer and then she kind of opened this kind of worms of actually a job that would be relevant and she kind of helped me go that direction. Um, but on the other side, so some of placements with at IQVIA, we still, we do internships and um, I know there'll be an opening for an internship for, um, it's mainly targeted at uh, UCL students doing the data science masters. And the idea is that you spend half of your time working on your master's project and then half the time doing work for IQVIA. And I believe that that is going to be advertised in the next week or so. So that might be something to look out for. Okay, thank you. Um, although I wouldn't necessarily recommend applying with a hangover. <laughs> um, what about anybody else? <laughs> Has anybody else any uh, thoughts about um, any finding summer placements? And actually, there's another question, which is more about internships and graduate placements as well. Um, any tips on increasing the chances of getting an internship or graduate placement? So summer placements, internships and graduate placements. Um, yeah, I can. Yeah, so I can add a few things. So um, I did um, uh, an internship at Canterbury Pharmaceuticals, which is a small biotech company. Um, and I got the opportunity through UCL. So like we had got speakers uh, during my master's course. Master's course. Um, and I approached, it was the CEO of the company and I approached him and then um, I was offered a business analyst position. Obviously it was, um, it was unpaid. It was mainly like helping the company um, developing a crowdfunding uh, program to raise uh, funds for the company so they can carry out with their job discovery research. Uh, but my um, tip would be that um, what Jessica said, it's sometimes worth to reach out to people on LinkedIn um, to network a bit, get to know them. And, um, you know, sometimes they can refer you to different positions. Um, and I think it's a better way so like people can get to know you and then uh, they can recommend you to recruiters and it's a better way than just like sending your CV and cover letter and yeah you can make a better impression by getting know someone um, on social media so maybe that thanks Jade uh, anything else from anybody else um, that actually just made me think as well in terms of recommendations. If you have, you know, any contacts in, in companies that you might be interested in, uh, and I don't know if other companies do this, but you do get a referral bonus. Like, so if I were to bring someone in that I know is quite capable for a specific position, I would get a referral bonus. So just having that connection might help. Um, yeah, Jay just, you know, highlighted the importance of networking. Even if it's just through LinkedIn, I think, 
you know, anything that can make you stand out. And in this case, it's like, oh, I already spoke to this person and, you know, she recommended me for this position. You know, they thought I would be a good match. It's already, uh, yeah, a win. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Being proactive sounds like uh, the number one tip. Okay, thank you. Um, let's see now. Uh, is a PhD an advantage? We kind of sort of covered this, but it says, would going in at a master's level, but a year's earlier, the smarter choice? I think I would just really want to add that you have to be quite honest with yourself as to why you're doing the PhD. So in my case, um, I, I didn't do it because I wanted that in my CV necessarily. I just am really passionate about research and I, and I knew that that was the, yeah, the career path I wanted to follow. And I think those three, four years were for me formative. I think if I had landed in industry after my, my master's, I would, yeah, I maybe would have been a different person or it would have taken me longer to be where I am now. Not sure. So I think in my case, I, I really recommend it as a formative experience. Um, and also because you get to be a, a student <laughs> for more years and enjoy that life. Um, but yeah, I, I think you just have, you know, I wouldn't do something just because it will appear nice in your city. You have to really enjoy it. Um, can I also add, add that um, within um, the clinical operations team at Paroxa, we do have some people who have a PhD, but I'm not 100% sure whether it's a very, very big advantage. It might be later on as you move up on the career ladder, but I'm not sure. And in terms of salary, they might pay you more, uh, but I'm not sure in, for example, if you work in management or commercial side, whether it is a very big advantage. So definitely, I think that doing a PhD, it's worth it if you're really passionate about something and you really want to be an expert in something. Um, but in the management sort of roles, it's, it's not that relevant, if that makes sense. Um, from a NHS perspective, I think, yes, if clinical science is something you have decided you do want to do, I would recommend just going straight into it, even after your BSc. If that's the thing that there's you don't get you don't get paid more if you have a phd or a master's it's all banding on the nhs so you don't get and having a phd would definitely if you want to become a consultant clinical scientist which most people do having a phd would help you get that position um in a big teaching hospital having a phd but you can get that later after you've like completed the stp or do it part-time even i know a couple of people who are going to start doing their phd part-time over six seven years i know <laughs> it sounds like incredibly daunting but if you're working uh, almost full-time along the side that actually kind of suits quite a few people so if you want to go into the nhs and do clinical science and you know that is what you want to do um i would recommend going into it sooner rather than spending extra time doing a phd Okay, thank you. Um, this question is directed to GSK, but again, I think it probably applies to uh, most people here. <clears throat> it says, um, how to apply in GSK for those who have two years internships? Uh, what catchy points are required in a CV? So I guess it's a, so again, sorry, the question is, a person that already has some internships, what to highlight in their CV? 
Um, well, I mean, highlight that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say, um, yeah, maybe just get some advice on, on, on CV writing. In my case, you know, when I applied to industry, I had it such that I had my education and then some you know, very limited work experience on the side. Um, and then I've, I've done a lot of outreach activities and a lot of volunteering. So I made sure to highlight that in terms of um, outreach experience or event management experience and also my interests. So I think, yeah, I, it, that combination has worked well for me, you know, highlighting first worst experience slash education, then the skills that I bring, um, perhaps also mention, you know, like, yeah, various skills or like uh, experience with a specific software or, you know, obviously highlight something like Office, but, uh, you know, other software that in terms of science and in terms of data analytics can be important and then highlighting any outreach volunteering experience. Thank you. And Tommy, raise your hand. Hi, uh, yeah. Um, so I know this question was directed, um, obviously, primarily at Jessica, but um, just in general to, to anyone that's applying, um, I've recruited a lot of people for a variety of roles um, in the last few years and probably one of the key things is actually and I know it sounds really simple but actually reading um, what the job description is and taking the time to actually think about how you meet the criteria that they're actually asking for and write your application um, in a way that 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 highlights how um, you meet the requirements that you're asking for um, time and time again, I've read applications and CVs which are incredibly generic and you can see someone's listed where they've worked or what they've done. And if they just expanded just a little bit more, they've probably got the skills that we're looking for, but they just haven't put it across um, in the application that they've made. Um, so as Jess suggested, you know, really maybe invest some time in... in um, Sort of how to how to write a CV, how to write an application, um, get people to review it, get people to 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 look over it with you, um, and and you know really the key is is actually stressing how you meet what they're asking for. Um, sorry, do you mind if I would quickly just add slightly onto that specifically in terms of the STP? But I think that is such a um, I think quite a profound point that I think was mentioned there I've read so many applications for the SCP specifically over the past few weeks because the deadline's just gone and people are usually very good at saying I've done this they go okay great like excellent that's a really good experience I think in terms of the STP and being a clinical scientist what um, the people who are viewing applications are looking for is that you understand the role that's what it is they're really looking to see that okay you've done this experience why do I care? I know it sounds really quite horrible saying it that way, but you kind of keep asking yourself that question when you read back your CV. If you don't really kind of think why, why are you hitting that point home to say why it's really relevant to them? So, you know, oh, I've done this experience working in a team, for example. Um, I know that would be make me good as a clinical scientist because I know that clinical scientists work in teams. Like it's a really generic way to put it, but bring everything you say back in full loop. 
I would say like, so to kind of go back to the, to the very point, and that really helps show that you understand the role. Cause I think so many people are used to reading applications from people who just blanket apply for things. Like mm-hmm. oh, they'll use the same application or really similar applications for so many different roles. And it's really obvious, I think when, when that's happened. So really try and tailor, tailor it for sure. And I thought as well, if I can interject on two, two points while listening to um, Kate and Tom. So one thing that I do a lot in my CV is I quantify. I love data, I love numbers. And therefore, you know, instead of saying I organized this event, it would be like, I organized this. It took, you know, I was leading X amount of people. It had X amount of attendees on a, you know, me- we had a budget of X amount of pounds. So just like quantifying, even if you think it looks small, it's just a way for the recruiter to digest what you have actually done. Uh, because it can be sometimes, you know, very wishy-washy <laughs> if, if you're trying to, um, yeah, just describe it w- without some actual numbers. And then the other thing that I thought about is if you do start getting rejections, which you will, because it's just the nature of applying for jobs, just ask for feedback. I think some companies are quite good at, at you know, highlighting why you didn't make it to a certain stage or, or you know, I think most of them would only focus on the interview stage if you didn't make it. So you made it to the interview, but you didn't get the role. But I think in, in some cases earlier on, you can still get feedback and yeah, just any anyone reviewing your, your CV as well would be really helpful. Thanks. And uh, I'll just add that if you search for UCL careers, how to write a CV, there's a very good leaflet there, which kind of explains everything what people were saying about making sure it's a bespoke CV, you, that you have your skills that are related to the application you're making uh, with evidence and quantity. So thank you everyone for saying that. Oh, can I just add lastly that um, yeah, sometimes like jobs, they don't require a cover letter, but I think if you can include um, optionally a cover letter that's, um, that can make you stand out because not everyone um, makes the effort to, to also to tailor a CV and a cover letter as well. But in a cover letter, you can expand on certain um, examples and then you can really describe why, why you would stand out and why it would be a good match for a company. And maybe I'll just ask if if the if they only ask for a CV, would you treat the email that you send the CV with as your cover letter? Um, but I mean, like, would you write it as if it was your cover letter? Oh um, no, I would separately have like a traditional CV, one-page CV, and then extra, say, a one-page cover letter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and just just to add to that because like with IQ, probably with other companies, you, the email you send goes to someone in HR who then forwards just the documents that you've attached to the actual person who will be interviewing you. So um, I'd recommend, yeah, putting something in a document rather than the email. could get lost somewhere. Great, thanks. Um, question for Cade. Uh, do you know if you can still apply for the technical scientist training program if your degree is not IBSM approved or you have already completed master's degree in the relevant area? Um, yes, is the short answer. You absolutely can apply. You do, you do not need to have an IBMS accredited, accredited degree. Um, I, that helped me personally, I think, in the interview just because in the process of getting the IBMS accreditation, I was able to get a lot of relevant experience that helped me in the application. That was a bonus, it's not a requirement whatsoever. So uh, most of the people in my uh, cohort of STP trainees 
do not have IBMS accredited degrees. Most of them didn't even do biomed. Like, I think most of them did just biochemistry or something like that. So it's, yeah, do not think you have to have an IBMS accredited degree to do the SCP because you absolutely don't. Um, and having, what is he? So uh, already have completed a master's. If you've already completed a master's degree in the relevant area, that's, I think that's one extra point in the um, application. The important point of doing that is definitely a bonus, I guess, to have done the master's degree in that's relevant because it just will give you more to talk about in the application. But that's it. That's where the benefit finishes, really. So, but yes, please do not think you have to have an IBMS accredited degree because you don't. Okay, maybe you can answer this one and then maybe Tom. Um, when applying for lab roles, is it a deal breaker if you haven't had any lab experience outside of your degree? No, um, it's not a deal breaker because if you're very clever, I've read actually a couple of good applications recently that had no lab experience, but I kind of thought they did at the end of it. It was really strange. Like it kind of like manipulated my mind how they'd, how they'd written it. It's more, there are having relevant experience i think it's always a good thing just because it kind of ticks that box but if you have no experience but you can say how the experience you do have in terms of uh, communication and in an nhs lab i'm sure tom will uh, agree with this like prior the ability to prioritize is just like one of the best things you can have ever so if you have done something or in your current experience where you can say oh look i've done this which shows that i can prioritize really well that they'll, they'll swallow that out they absolutely love that because that's what it's more about I think but having the relevant experience yes it helps but it's not an essential it really isn't most of the people in my year have never worked in an NHS lab before thanks Cade Tom uh yeah I mean to echo what Cade said it isn't a deal breaker at all um and it kind of circles back to some of the points that we've just made about how you are writing your application and your CV. Uh, first of all, if you do have experience um, through the course of your degree, again, don't just say you've got experience, be specific about it, be specific about the techniques you use and the equipment you use, um, because that's all of interest to us. If you have no experience whatsoever, the reality is your entry-level roles in labs, you don't actually, you, you don't require a huge amount of um, specific skills. Um, a lot of the day-to-day -day processing on in, in our lab, for instance, um, in terms of physical processing is putting a blood sample in a centrifuge. Uh, maybe you're doing a, a FICOL preparation or a lymphoprep, and then you're extracting mononuclear cells and plasma. And it sounds amazing, but you're literally just using a pipette to do that. Um, and actually, as Kate said, your, your attention to detail um, your ability to not just, it, it sounds boring, but record keeping, not just keeping the records, but actually understanding why it's important. Um, so for Cade example, uh, Cade for example, it is making sure that the right result is given for the right patient. Uh, in my biobank, for instance, because everything is anonymized, it's making sure that the right sample is labeled appropriately. And so when a researcher comes to me and asks for, 100 plasma samples from patients with hepatocellular carcinoma that I'm actually giving them 100 samples of plasma from patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. So it is very much about highlighting what your skills are and how, again, as I said earlier, in how you actually fit 
what we're asking for. So no, it's not a deal breaker. Just highlight the skills that you do have. Thanks. Um, I've got a question here. Again, I think we kind of covered this in a way and maybe it's not just internships, but it says that, would you say that an internship in a relevant area is necessary to reach where you are now? And I guess that could apply to just relevant experience as well. And I think so, we've already answered it in many ways that uh, no, this is not necessary to have relevant experience. Does anyone want to add anything to that? Um, I mean, if I may, so I, I, I'm um, at what I would consider quite a senior um, level um, in a biobank. Um, so you, you, you wouldn't be able to walk out of a degree or a PhD straight into um, managing a lab or, or, or managing a biobank, um, for instance. But you certainly um, having having spirit, having experience, having something um, that if you can demonstrate that you've used your skills and you've been able to um, uh, have an impact using your skills, then yeah, it will it will. I'm not sure if I've answered the question there. Sorry. Um, also, there's a, this makes me think there's a, how, um, uh, you know, this thing where it's, oh, you need X many years to get this job. But when you come ac ac out of academia, you don't have those years in industry. Um, like, sorry, for me personally, I could only have got my job through an internship because I didn't have I was coming straight out of my master's I didn't have experience in industry the only other way I could have got my job now is if I had had two or three years experience somewhere else um, but I wouldn't be able to get that because I didn't have two or three weeks experience from anywhere else so you could get in that loop and that's why internships are really good like that bridging Also, actually, another point is when my internship ended and it turned into a permanent role, it was a really weird feeling because that's the first time in my life that there wasn't this end date. Like with your degree, you know when it's going to end. With the internship, you know when it's going to end. And well, I think, yeah, whenever you start a permanent job, that was um, quite a weird adult moment. Thanks, Anna. Um, interesting question here. Um, before the event started, the panelists and I had a brief discussion and we talked about the elephant in the room. So here's a question about the elephant in the room. Last and current summer, there is an extreme lack in summer internships. And even if it was supposed to be part of the degree, we are prevented from having hands-on experience in the lab due to COVID restrictions. Are the employers taking that into consideration? It is a major concern among new grads that we are even less employable right now. So do you have any tips how to get about it? I think obviously everyone is aware of the current situation and aware of, you know, there not being sufficient opportunities nowadays. I think even not just in terms of internships, but applying for jobs. I've heard a lot of people are struggling a lot. So, but I, but I wouldn't worry because, you know, the, the industry is aware of it. And I think if you can make up through other means, like Kate was mentioning, right? It's just in the way that you write your CV or your cover letter, you, you can convince someone. If you have that 
influencing, you know, some of these influencing skills somewhere inside you, just leverage them. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, in terms of lab, this is, you know, I guess that the negative aspects that I see some of my colleagues in, you know, when I was a senior scientist working in the labs, they were only allowed to go into site if it's a high priority program. So not everyone got, got to get back on the side. But if you're working on, on data science related roles or data related roles at all, that was much easier to handle because, you know, I can do 100% of my job from home. I don't need to be in the lab at all. So this is in a way the beauty of data roles that it's a lot more flexible. Um, you don't need to be present all the time. And I think even when we go back to the new normal, you know, I, I wouldn't be working on site every single day. I think I would, you know, spread it half and half time because, you know, it, it, can, it can be convenient. Thanks. Anyone else want to add something? Um, also with the limitation of COVID, there's also, it's opened up an opportunity in that data science world because there are things you can do like open source data is available and you can get involved with certain COVID related research. Um, so that might be something worth spending time like volunteering with that and then you've just said something you can talk about. And what about the addressing the fact that new grads feel they're less employable? Is there something they could potentially be doing? And you mentioned open source, Eleanor. Sorry, pardon? You mentioned open source and using using that for experience. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so there are COVID efforts that you can do from home. Uh, you can work from data science COVID efforts that you can do from home in which you could, if you can't get a, pay, a paid work experience or something, this, I, that's what I would spend my time doing. Yeah, make sure you're like exercising the skills that like a dream job that you want and but using what you can. Yeah, just to, I think echo that point. Employers very much are aware, I think, of everything that, that, that has been going on and the lack of direct opportunity. So I think maybe whereas before some companies might be expecting you've done an internship, they might not be expecting that now, but by being able to put something potentially on your CV or your application that you've looked into this or you've thought about this or you've done this specifically, even if it's something quite small, it just shows, I think the intent, I think the intent is probably more important over this COVID period than actually like having loads and loads of experience. It's just not because I think as well, you kind of have to, as horrible as the whole situation is, I think everyone's kind of in the same boat. So it's almost kind of brought the caliber of all the applications down, but so, but in most areas, not all areas, but in most areas, kind of everyone's feeling the same pinch. So it's it's not ideal. It's still a terrible situation, but that shouldn't mean that some, like a large number of people have massive um, experience advantages over others because nobody's kind of been able to to go through the same processes at the moment so yeah i would say do what you can um outside of that whether it's just researching so you've got something to talk about and show the intent 
if if you can't show the actual physical evidence of doing it. I also thought of two more points. So the first one is that there, this is maybe just relevant to data science, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's similar in other areas. There are courses out there that are free for you to upskill and that you can just add on to your CV. So that's one. So just be proactive about it. And secondly, I think if you can just demonstrate how you were able to adapt to the situation, because adaptability, agility is a huge thing that they will measure, even if you don't measure in your CV, they, they will gosh, you know, whether you would be able to work in a fast-paced environment and, and learn something quite fast and move on. So I think if you can just demonstrate how you were perhaps doing one activity and then you had to um, adapt into this working from home or virtual remote environment to continue to fulfill that activity that's already giving you a, a winning point, I think. Thanks. Uh, Jay, did you want to add anything? Um, maybe that if you guys have an interview, then you can just talk about like projects that you do as part of your course, because even during like um, uni projects, you gain certain soft skills and then um, if you don't have any internship um, experience, you can just talk about those. And as long as you have a good, sorry, there's a baby in the background. As long as the, there is a, you have an example um, through which you can demonstrate your skills, I think that uh, that's what employers um, do value that. So I wouldn't worry too much about how much experience and how employable you are, but more like focus on the soft skills you have now then. Great, thanks. And here's a question directed to Cade. What is your typical day like in the lab? Do you find it repetitive? Does it involve problem solving to work out what is wrong with a patient? Um, yes, to, 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 to both of those main points. So the, I guess a, a typical day in the morning, I spend the morning getting through the routine stuff, which is repetitive and boring some for like i'm not gonna lie it's the nature i think of um a routine service whether that's the laboratory whatever it is any routine service is going to have quite repetitive quite mundane tasks so i mean for example one of my morning tasks would be to come in every single gp result that my lab um sends out i have to look through even all of the normal ones people are perfectly healthy and i still have to look through them to make sure it's it is a little bit mind numbing it uh, and that's just being quite honest but it i think even though it is a little bit repetitive that initial part you kind of still know how important it really is so you are still paying attention and even though it is repetitive it doesn't feel like it because you are still trying to look for those um you know for, for those odd little uh, cases that do kind of slip by and as well as even though there is that portion of every day that is repetitive a huge chunk of the day completely isn't um, because you'll be dealing with really quite um, strange clinical results that you have to follow up on, um, whether you have to contact the clinicians or the patients or whatever it is. Or And as you, sorry, I'll just bring up that question again, talking about the end of it, the um, about the troubleshooting to find out what's wrong with the patient. The patient. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think uh, as a clinical scientist, as a clinical scientist, you happen to think on two fronts, actually, which is quite, I think, quite unique to this job, which I really enjoy. First thing you're asking yourself, part of the troubleshooting process is, is what you're seeing real? And this is where 
I think your scientific training will come into it because you'll see a, a set of results, see the patient's clinical details, and you'll be asking yourself, does this seem like it's plausible? If you've got results that a patient should be killed over on the floor dead and you know they're fine, they've just gone to their GP for like a routine test, for example, it's likely something's gone wrong in the process. And it's your job as a clinical scientist to find that out and say, actually, I don't believe these results. I think they're wrong. Um, and to not report them. On the flip side of that, sometimes you do get very real and very abnormal results that do require, some, it's not, not often it happens, but sometimes the hair stands up a little bit on the back of your neck and you're a bit like, oh no, like this is really bad. Like I have to do something about this now. And that, it can, it can get a bit almost stressful um, sometimes doing it. And then once you've done your initial um, uh for the protocol that you have to do it is then taking a step back and using your scientific knowledge and clinical knowledge to troubleshoot that process and think okay let's figure out what's what's wrong with the patient here um but that usually is a little uh, not quite so urgent in that particular moment so yes there are mundane and repetitive parts of the job absolutely but it's not even the mundane parts are actually kind of enjoyable and yeah so yeah Thanks. Thanks. Um, I have a question here. I'm not really sure whether it's able to answer this, um, but someone's asked um, if they're looking for a research-related career, which would be the most financially rewarding? None. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can comment on that because I've been on both sides uh, and I can tell you that these days, at least in the pharmaceutical industry, um, having a data science related job, so not necessarily a data science background, but a, a role in data and tech is being rewarded more highly these days. Uh, and I think it's just down to the nature of these people that can do these data science and tech related uh, tasks could go to Google or Facebook, you know, some other tech company that would pay them a lot. <laughs> so we have to remain competitive and, and that is why. So I, I definitely went on a jump when I changed from senior scientist and transitioned to, to data science. So that is, yeah, one to note. Um, but I wouldn't say research is, you know, it's a career that you're in because of the money. Uh, otherwise I would just <laughs> suggest that you go into, you know, finance or consulting. <laughs> Yeah, and obviously, like, if you're in a private company, you're going to be paid more than if you're working for publicly funded. Okay. Um, so here's a question. Um, obviously, other than being on a panel at 6.30 to uh, 6 o'clock to 7.30 in an evening, and this is a, a question to all of you, do your positions allow you to have a reasonable work-life balance? Um, yeah, I can start with that maybe. Um, so as a CRA, you definitely have um, sort of work-life balance. The job itself requires a bit of travel, uh, but at the same time, say at Paroxel, I'm not sure how it works in other companies, but at Paroxel, you do, um, so it's like if you work overtime, then you can take days off depending on how much you worked extra. Um, and also that the fact that um, CROs, they allow you to work from home fully. Um, so you don't have to travel to the office and then go home. So like you don't lose time in traveling. Um, so definitely that helps to, to have a work-life balance. Um, 
Yeah. Thanks. Who wants to go next? Uh, I can say yes, absolutely. And I think this is one of the key differences that I noticed transitioning from academia to industry. Um, in industry, I finish at 5, 5.30, well, depending on when I start, right? I, I work a lot with US colleagues. So sometimes most of my afternoon will be calls with the US uh, and therefore I stay a bit later, but that means that I can start later because you know, in the mornings it's just for me um, to, to go on with my, my own tasks. But yes, I, I definitely have, you know, no one expects you to reply to an email at weird hours. And I think especially during COVID, everyone is being super understanding. So, you know, a lot of managers have young kids that had to, you know, go through the homeschooling and, and taking care of the kids at home. They just arrange their schedules such that they could, you know, uh, flex and um, share those responsibilities with their partners. And there was no expectation for them to, to work, you know, beyond that. So, so long as you do your job and you're delivering, I think it can be very flexible. So I, I, I always, in the normal world, I always had time for my other um, hobbies. Thanks, Jess. And Tommy, you raised your hand. Hi, yeah. Um, I think work life, I mean, personally, where I am at the moment, I have a pretty good work life balance. Um, I am responsible for uh, 15, 15 freezers full of 100,000 plus samples. So I have also had to go to work at 9 p.m. on Christmas Eve because a freezer failed, um, which isn't brilliant for your uh, work-life balance. But I think actually work-life balance can also come down to um, you yourself and, and you know, when you start a job um, setting out boundaries about what you are uh, willing to do. And, and, um, and with that, you're only really able to set those boundaries as long as you're working hard, meeting your targets, as long as the work is done. Um, but I, for instance, I don't have um, my emails on my phone um, because I, I've had it before and you inevitably end up looking at them last thing before you go to bed at night and you open them as soon as you wake up in the morning. And the reality is the person that sent them to you, uh, they're not looking at them. And you, there are very few problems that you can actually solve at 1 a.m. in the morning with an email. Um, so I think it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm possibly the oldest person on this panel. So perhaps some of that has come with age and experience um, and, and perhaps for your graduates, it is quite intimidating to, to start off a job um, with, with that kind of attitude, but it is worth trying to think about developing it. Um, and like I say, setting out, setting out boundaries. Work is done, you know, you, you don't want to be one of those people that's um, coming in late, leaving early and not getting work done, then people will notice. Um, but if you are on top of your business and getting your job done, then it should be fine for you to sort of within reason set your own um, work-life balance. It's give and take um, at, at the end of the day, I think. Thanks, Tom. Oh, can I just add, I forgot to mention it, that um, I think when you, sometimes um, there are times when, when you are really busy with different projects and it's really important when you have a 
a manager to to just have clear communication if you're like really you have so much work to do and then and then you don't have enough time you just need to be honest and discuss it with your manager and I'm sure that they would be able to help you so um yeah it's really important to speak up um and because work-life balance it is very important yeah um I think in terms of clinical science um the NHS has a quite an unhealthy obsession, I think, sometimes with overworking. Um, it is becoming better, but it is a bit tough. Uh, doing, doing the STP is really difficult. I think you've got so much work to do in the three-year period that um, over the course of the STP anyway, a lot you, you still will be able to like take time off, but you will have a lot to do outside of those hours. However, when you are qualified and you're the duty biochemist and you're on call, it's absolutely every friday at half past five something happens uh, urgent sample comes in a patient's really sick needs this analysis and i mean i mean legally you can go home and it's fine but you're not going to because you know it's kind of your job to kind of so it's there has been quite a few times i've been there very late um doing doing things but it's you know it's, it's not typical for the most part yes the work-life um, balance is, is okay, but it, it varies a lot um, and it fluctuates as well, depending on what's happening and staffing levels. And yeah, it's just, yeah, the NHS can be a bit tough for work-life balance sometimes. I think as well, you can get people that, like a project manager can say, oh, don't work late on this, but can you do this, 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 this for... <laughs> like two contradicting things you're just saying but I think um what I've learned and I'm still trying to learn this the skill of um predicting timelines knowing how long something's going to take me because I used to say oh yeah okay I could do this in a week and then it's really a thing that would really take a month and then I kind of have put that pressure on myself so yeah time awareness is really important um, it's a nice way to wrap up, I think, is the work-life balance. I'd like to thank you all for taking part in this panel event. I hope you as attendees have taken a lot from it. Um, if we answered your question, that's great. Hopefully the answers given answered those questions that may not have been specifically answered. Um, so all it takes is for me to say thank you very much once again. Um, and we can see some thank yous coming through the chat. Uh, from from the attendees which is really nice uh, and thank you for taking the time out in your evening to be part of this panel event it's much appreciated thank you all so much for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed hearing from today's speakers and have taken something useful away from the experience one thing i enjoyed hearing about was the range of entry-level roles available to graduates from relevant disciplines as I found students often worry that they need direct work experience to break into the sector. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the UCL Careers podcast. <laughs>